All right, we are moving past the laws, but we are going to have just as much fun with worship as we did with the laws. That is not a misprint. We are going to try to dive through 40 verses today. I promise it will be mostly painless. Okay, mostly. Um, with that, though, we are, I'm not going to torture us by reading it all and then trying to go back through it because there's a, when we're taking big chunks of stuff like this, it doesn't do us a lot of good to try to make a comment about every little thing in every little sentence. We would never go home. Now, I mean, I'm okay with that, but I think the rest of you would riot at some point and throw things at me. So we will take this in large chunks. We've done this before, so we will read it all as we go. Now, why does God devote just as much time to the ritual and religious observance of Israel as he does to their laws? The answer is, as much as he cares about how they live in the world, he cares even more about how they live in his world, how they live when they come before him to honor, worship, and praise. If God does not set the ground rules, we will. Uh. (laughs) Yes, now we're in trouble. Our sins, our inability cannot comprehend his holiness. Therefore, in order to comprehend and worship rightly his holiness, he needs to set the ground rules. That begins here in Exodus 25. Now, warning here, we are going to try to see two things. As we go through this, we are going to see the actual things for what they are, because they exist and they matter. We then want to make sure we see what they are pointing to. You cannot do one without the other. If you skip the what it is and what it means and try to run straight to the what is it pointing to, you will really end up in a terrible place. I've mentioned this before. Um, it'll be worth going over again real quick. This is why if you ever see the, um, the huckster preachers on TV, you know, the ones that if, if you would just send in your love gift of, of $14.95 this month, then you will receive this wood from the real actual cross of Jesus. You know, you know those guys? I, I'm telling you, I got the voice. I could have done this in another lifetime. If I, if I just had just slightly lower standards, I could have I pulled this up and be like, you too can be healed. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Need a minute there. Got to get that one out of the system so we don't come back to it ever again. Some of you are like, please, no, we will never speak of this again. What you'll notice, though, if you ever pay attention to those guys for five minutes, and, and I'm enough of a torturing myself person that I do on occasion, you'll notice how often they are pulling things out of the Old Testament, specifically the laws and the, the worship codes of Israel. And the reason they're able to do that is if they take the thing, pay no attention to what it actually means, and then try to run straight to today, they can twist it and contort it like a bizarre Philadelphia pretzel into whatever they want it to mean. We, can't, we don't want to skip the step. So the first thing is, what actually is the thing? What would it have meant to those people? Now that we understand what it means to God's people then, we can understand what it should mean to God's people now. Make sense? Okay. That's the goal. So let's dive in. Exodus 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, time out. Go back, go back. (laughs) We're stopping right there because it matters. Keep in mind, this comes at the end of a week. Remember, we talked about this last week. Moses has been sitting there waiting for a week. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. That's the first thing. The second thing is, we cover this every time, 
But this is one of those places where we are beating the dead horse until it doesn't exist any longer. From where do these commands come? The Lord spoke to Moses. I've said this before. I will say it again. If you want to understand the prophetic ministries of the prophets of Israel, understand the work of God and the implications of that work for God's people in the Exodus. Because in the Exodus, you see the mercy and grace of God on an undeserving people as he rescues and redeems them. And then throughout the history of Israel, you see that redeemed people going astray, following after everything under the sun, but the God who has redeemed them. And you see the message of the prophets calling them back. They call them back by hearkening to the language of redemption. In the Old Testament, the, the language of redemption is most clearly seen in the work of God in Exodus. So things like Micah 6 hearken back to these verses. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, that people get confused because they go, but... But, but, but God commanded those offerings and God commanded that ritual. Yes. Why? As a test of your heart. It's a test of your heart. See, why are you here? This is always a fun question, probably a dangerous one for people in my line of work. <laughs> but why are you here on a Sunday morning? If your answer is because people would think badly about me or it's just what you do on a Sunday, then... Wrong answer. Now look, some of you grew up with that answer. Sunday morning, get your butt up, put your good pants on, we're going to church. That's just, that's what we do, and the why we do it is out the window. Now look, if you want to do that to your kids, I'm not telling you not to, but always make sure at some point you start building in the why. They need the why. So why do I do what I do, the silliness that I do on a Sunday morning? Because I want to make the things of Scripture, the things that teach about God, important and somewhat memorable to you. Because if I can get you to remember a handful of things out of my inane ramblings on a Sunday morning, then my hope is on a random Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning that those things will stick and they will impact how you live and walk in this world. We are here because we love and seek to honor and serve the God who has redeemed us. That's why we sing. That's why we, we listen. That's why I teach. That's why we give. That's why we do all of the things that we do. If there's any other answer for that, you've missed it entirely. That's why this matters. Because God is speaking to Israel, commanding them these things. This is what God has said to do. Now, the response from Israel should be, Therefore, we want to do these things. Why? Because God has told us this is what he wants us to do. And we, as his redeemed people, by the work of his mighty right hand, wish to do the things that he wants us to do. If the answer is, well, I better or else, you haven't progressed and matured in faith. You haven't progressed and matured in worship and service. These starting points matter. When the prophets are calling Israel back, they are calling them back to a heart before God that will then worship rightly according to the commands, not because they're afraid of getting that backhand, but because they wish to honor the God who has redeemed them. So, miss that? 
We're all in a world of hurt, so I got to make sure we cover that up front. Now, with that said, we can dive in. Verse 2. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. All right. Now we get to the fun part. Clark is internally jumping up and down. He's been bugging me about this for the last couple of months. <laughs> nah. We're going to talk about giving for a few minutes, not the whole Sunday. What's the standard here? Notice it. Pay attention because it doesn't change in your Bible. Fast forward to the New Testament, to Paul. Now I say this, 2 Corinthians 9, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. See, Paul doesn't just pull this out of thin air. Paul is building upon what God has told the sons of Israel in their commandments, in the law. Raise a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. So is Moses going to get to go around with a stick and be like, hey, we're taking up the offering now. Put it in. Hey, hey, hey. Shake pockets. I see a 20. Why not? Because this is a religion that is built upon a relationship. These people are supposed to have a relationship with their God. This is not do this or else. Again, what are the prophets calling them back to? The prophets are calling back to a just life, a godly life, a life of sacrifice, a life of holiness, not built upon their sacrifice, but built upon their love of and trust in God. The standard for their offerings to even start with is what? Do you love, trust, worship, and serve God? If you do, then contribute to the work of his people. If you don't, don't. But recognize this is not a matter of finance. This is a matter of heart, desire, mindset. What am I and why am I? And what am I going to do about it? This is a proof of who you are before God, Ephesians 4. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So in other words, as Paul says in Philippians 3, he's thrilled that the Philippians are contributing to him and helping him out, right? There's not Philippians 3, it's Philippians 4. Why is he thrilled by that? Because they've renewed their concern. Because does Paul need their money? No. Is he, look, is he happy to have it? Yes. But does he need it? No. Because Paul says, look, you give me the money, I will be thrilled. I will be happy and I will learn to love and serve and honor and worship God in all that I do in this abundance. But I've also learned how to love, honor, worship, and serve God in need. Because God is the one who strengthens. God is the one who prepares. God is the one who gifts. God is the one who does all of these things. Paul's thrilled that the Philippians have given a contribution because they have given a contribution. They are concerned about the work of God. Therefore, they have participated. And I've said this before. I will say it again this morning. If you find the work of God in your midst... As a Christian, you're obligated to participate in it. Time, energy, 
money. They're all important. They're all important. We need all of them, every single one. So if this is guilting you, I'm sorry. I didn't do it. <laughs> it's Clark's fault. No, <laughs> no I'm, I'm picking at you. But There you go. There you go. That'll be all right. The point of this, though, is this is why when people ask me, what about the tithe? I don't care about the tithe. The tithe was the old... (laughs) Mike's like, I have to count on Mondays. I do. Here's why I don't. Because the tithe is the Old Testament tax on people of God in Israel. The New Testament standard, look, go read 2 Corinthians from Paul. You know what his standard for the Corinthians is? When they ask, how much should we give? You know what Paul's answer is? How much you got? (laughs) I mean, it is. Go read his... Paul's answer is, how much you got? He's like, what do you mean, how much do I got? Well, how much do you, how much can you part with for the work of God and his kingdom? Because that's the answer. Now look, if that's 10% for you, God bless you, thank you. If it's 5% with you, God bless you, thank you. If it's 20% for you, God bless you, thank you. Notice what matters. What can you do for God's work for the upkeep of his ministry? That's what this is about. That's what this is about. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. If you don't want to be a part of God's people in Israel, that's whose problem? It's a you problem. The standard has not changed. If if you don't contribute in any shape, form, or fashion, and you have a clean conscience before God, awesome. I will not look down on you. I will not say sideways things. I won't. I don't care. Because that's not the point. The point is, do you worship, serve, and honor God in all that you are and all that you do? Or are you hiding things in the world for the world, for the sins of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes? That's what this is automatically starting to teach Israel. This is not come down the mountain, round up the goon squad, and let's see how much money we can raise. This is take up a contribution for the people that love the Lord and his work, and what will come of it, and we will rejoice and be happy. Now, this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skin, dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Whew, okay. Why that stuff? Well, one, because that's the stuff Israel has. But that raises another interesting question. Where did Israel get this stuff? Yeah, but See, we say that as a default answer. They really, literally got it from God. Exodus chapter 12. The sons of Israel had done according to the words of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. See, the same lesson being taught then is being taught now. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. See, if you were in Israel and you were like, hey, God got us all this cool stuff, you missed it. Went right over your head, landed on the tent behind you somewhere. I was going to say wall, but they're in the desert and tent, so there are no walls. So yeah, lands on the tent behind them. They've missed it completely. No, God has given you this stuff for what? For the worship, service, and honoring of his work, not yours. Now, is there a blessing in this, in this world for Israel for following these things? Yes. Is that the point? 
know, and that is the thing that matters. This is beginning their teaching and their instructions on worship. Your worship is not about you. It's about the God you are singing to, the God you are praying to, the God you are learning about. This is about he who has redeemed you. Now, once we take up all this stuff, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Believe it or not, that is really cool. And what I mean by that is the pattern part of that, because God's going to show him what this looks like. Now, notice how I phrased that. God is not going to show him what it should look like. God is going to show him what it does look like. So we're going to fast forward in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, saying, See, he says, you will make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Meaning, when God is constructing whatever his heavenly throne room looks like, he doesn't do it. Just, eh, you know, put some drapes over here. and No, no, we don't like those carpet squares. We'd like, yes, that carpet square. And it's not like an HGTV show. And if you watch those things, have fun. I can't do it after a while. It's the same show over and over and over again. It's done with a purpose. It is done with redemption in mind. Because what comes first, the heavenly tabernacle or the earthly one? The heavenly one. We don't construct the heavenly one so that we can then construct the earthly one. We construct the earthly one so that the priest can offer sacrifice according to what is done in the sight of God, which means this work is about Christ. This is about Christ. It is not about a redemption for that people at that time. It is about a redemption for God's people for all time. The pattern shown to Moses is the pattern that Christ has gone through, the pattern that Christ has ordained, the pattern that Christ has authorized and functioned within. This is all pointing forward beyond Israel. Once again, this is a hallmark of their worship, but their worship is about who? God, which means their furniture is about God. Believe it or not, Talk about random conversations that matter. This is why if you rewound history um, to Protestant churches about 500 years ago, and we could you know, dig up the, uh, the old dead guys, the Martin Luther's and the Ulrich's Vingley's and the guys who built churches, they would just look down their noses at us so badly. Do you know why? Do you know the first thing they would just completely scoff at? Your chairs. They would be aghast at your furniture. Because you know what their furniture would look like? That right there. You know why? Because one, they're simple. No, no, they had cushions. We've had cushions for thousands of years. Why didn't they put bunches of cushions in church? Believe it or not, they did it on purpose. It was supposed to be uncomfortable. <laughs> no, see, that's what we do. See, we were like, no, don't give them the cushy chairs. They'll fall asleep on us. No, 
You ready? Theological understanding. So think about, if you want to have some fun, Google later, because you can't fly anywhere. So Google old cathedrals in Europe. And if you want to have some real fun, um, Google image search for Grossmünster in um, Switzerland. Literally, big building. (laughs) Um, The doors on that thing are like two stories tall. You can't walk up to the door, grab it, and open it. It requires a team. It requires coordination. Why? Because those doors are symbolic of what is behind it. You are walking into a place where you will worship God. Everything in the building is meant to make you do what? It's meant to make make you do this, to look up because it gets your eyes off of you. They didn't want you to have cushy, comfortable seats because they actually wanted you to be uncomfortable in church. It's on purpose. It's a reminder. You're a sinner saved by grace. You need to sit on a hard, uncomfortable seat to learn about God so that you will be reminded that your comfort is not here. It is in eternity with Christ. That's why for generations, for centuries, we didn't put padding in the seats. It was done intentionally. That's why the windows were big. That's why the churches were ornate. It was meant to get you to think higher, to look up. That's why the steeples were built like they were. What was supposed to be the biggest building in town? So that no matter where you were and what you were doing, you could be reminded that you do so in the shadow of the work of Christ. All of your life centered around him. Your worship is not about you. It's about him. That starts right here. Verse 10. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. So um, in a nutshell, four by two by two. That's not exactly precise. A cubit is about 18 inches. And the reason I say about is because there's a cubit. So, you know, you get a standard sort of measurement, but you kind of go, okay, yeah, my podium is a cubit by like a cubit and a quarter. There you go. So it's about four by two by two. You shall cast four gold rings for it, fasten them on it for its four feet. I'm sorry, fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two, gold ri- and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. This is a big deal. So if you were in Sunday school this morning, this is a recap. Because this came up. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir, wood, and with uh, fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Don't ask me what a castanet is, I have no idea. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Couple of things. See, all right, Sunday school people, shh, you already got this answer, so you know, so don't, don't, don't help the other children. What was the first problem with Israel transporting the ark in the manner they were doing it? I'm sorry? The ox, which means it was on what? The ark. The ark is on a cart. Didn't we just read 
We put poles so you can carry it and you don't remove it. Why? This is, this is something I made, a, made mention of in Sunday school again. A four by two by two wooden box overlaid inside and out with gold. Now, granted, gold is a metal, but it's not really that heavy. So if you're coating something with gold, how much does this box really weigh? I mean, a four by two by two wooden box. I mean, four, give or take, by two, by two. I mean, I think I can pick that up. I can pick that up by myself. We, we just ran poles through each side, which means how many people can we use to carry it? We use four, easy. Four grown men can't go. I mean, we can do this all day, right? We're not carrying anything of any substantial weight. God didn't make this complicated for them because it was supposed to be about who? Him. Why carry it? Because it's God's seat. It is God's ark. This isn't something for draft animals to take care of. This is something for you to take care of, for you to worry about. This matters to you and how you understand God. How much does this mean to you? That's what this is. I mean, how many of you have ever told somebody, no, I can't be a pallbearer? <laughs> somebody comes up and said, I'd like you to be a pallbearer at you know, my grandma's funeral. You say what? I'd be honored. I appreciate it. Because it's important. And the fact that they asked you meant that it was important to them that you do it. God has come in and said, I put poles on my ark so you can carry it. Okay. <laughs> Where are we going? How long is it going to take to get there? Especially since these people walked everywhere anyway. Would it be that big of a, a burden to carry the ark? No. It demonstrates who you are and how you got there and what these things mean to you. So the details are important because they're opportunities not to catch you. Don't, don't think of God's laws and God's worship uh, code as like a field sobriety test. Yeah, I've joked with Cameron's uncle before. Um, Cameron's uncle is a retired North Carolina uh, state police officer. And he has said a couple of times as I've had this conversation with him, because he, he goes, he loves field sobriety tests. He goes, those things are designed. He goes, I can, you can do it perfectly and be sober. I'll find a reason that I can do what I need to do. They're set up that way. Because that's what he looks at you. Say you're alphabet backwards and you start going, um, 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 well, you're nervous. See, why are you nervous? <laughs> exactly. But that means you're hiding something, right? So now I have reason to give you a breathalyzer. That's, that's literally the whole reasoning behind these. Like every, art, every aspect of it is meant so I can just find something so I can get to the next step, which is why good lawyers will tell you if they did the field sobriety test, you know, that's their argument point. Don't think of God's law that way. It's not an opportunity to catch you in something. It is an opportunity for you to demonstrate righteousness and love of your Savior. And there's a difference between those two things. Because one says, well, God's out to get me. And the other one says, says I'm out to serve God. One views it as a trap. The other views it as a blessing. As Christians called by his name, honoring and serving him in all that we do because of the work of Christ, our attitude should be the, the latter, serving him, seeking opportunities to refine my mind, to purify my heart, to walk in the newness of life as he has shown it. So, same thing here. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. Now, this is, this is where things get a little bit difficult and also a little depressing. So Hebrews 9 helps us out. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, 
Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. Now, if you want to do some research, I think I put this in your bulletin. Exodus 16 for the manna, number 17 for Aaron's rod, and Exodus 31 for the, uh, the, ta- the tables of the covenant, the tablets. That's where you can see where they were commanded by God. Did I put them in there? Yeah, go me. So there we go. So that's where you can go read those and see where God specifically commanded each of those things to be put into the ark. Now, my fun thing is why those things? Because I think it matters. See, what's the manna teaching? What was the whole point of the manna? Was the point of the manna so that Israel didn't starve to death? No, God could have walked them another way where there were fields of food. and th- why, the man- why march them out into the desert where there's nothing so that he could provide them manna? Because their provision isn't from the earth. Their provision isn't from their hunting skills. Their provision is from God. Why the staff that budded? Well, go read that story at some point. Have some, have some depressingness. It's a challenge on the authority of Moses and Aaron. Now, who picked Moses? God. Who said your brother will be a priest? God did. So when you say, Moses, we don't like you being in charge, are you having a fight with Moses? No, you're having a fight with God. And so God demonstrated the authority of Moses and Aaron, which is ultimately demonstrating whose authority? His, hence the rod. And of course, the tablet. And I'm going to say tablet, even though I wrote tablets in my note, because I'm dying on this hill. You ready? I'm planting myself. There There were not two tablets in the ark. I don't think Moses comes down the mountain, unless you're Mel Brooks, and he came down with three. And if you've seen that movie, repent. No. <laughs> Sorry. Cinematic gold right there. I give you these 15, these 10 commandments. No, that's not how that happened. We think about them with one stone tablet has one through five written on them, and the other stone tablet has six through 10 written on them, right? And then Moses stands there. No, I think each tablet has all 10 written on them because it's a covenantal document. Just like when you bought your house. Those of you who have ever gone through a mortgage process, how many copies of those papers were there? You got one and the bank gets one, right? And then you, well, you didn't do anything with yours. You're like, the, you're, you trusted your lawyer to keep your copy, right? Or you put it, in, they did like I did, and you put it in a lockbox somewhere and then you found it years later and you're like, oh, we kept that. Then you realize you have enough kindling to start a small forest fire in California somewhere but you each get a copy of the contract. The Ten Commandments are the initial contract. Israel gets a copy of those. displayed at the tabernacle, displayed at the temple. Who gets the other copy? God. Because when you put them in the ark, who sees them? God does. The Nazis taught you that in Indiana Jones, right? You open the thing, nobody gets to open it and look in. Everybody cooks. So once you put them in, they're never supposed to leave, which means they are for God. They are His copy. It's a portion of the covenant. It's a reminder of the promises. It's demonstrating that in that ark is the provision, the power, the promise of all that God has done. It's a symbol for Israel, a tangible physical symbol that when the priest goes in every year, all the work of God is continuing. All the things that he has promised he will do, he will bring to pass. And if you doubt the sinfulness of Israel... 1 Kings chapter 8, cleaning up the temple, going through everything. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. 
at some point between the end of Exodus when they built it and put the stuff in and when they're actually going through and cleaning and restoring the temple and setting it up in 1 Kings 8. Actually, 1 Kings 8 would be the actual building, so I'm at the wrong spot. So yeah, when they actually bring the ark from the tabernacle, at some point in there, somebody had gone in and taken the staff that budded and the manna. What are you going to do with the manna? I mean, what was the, oh, kindling, here we go, yay, go team. <laughs> By the time they found it, was Aaron's rod even worth burning? I mean, and, and who thinks through, hey, we found stuff in the ark of God, let's rummage. That's a sinful, broken, messed up people. And yet his mercy will hold on them. They will stay as a nation for hundreds more years. He will continue to fulfill his promises. He will accomplish all that he has set out to do in spite of them. I got good news for you, Christian. Nothing has changed. And the work of God continues in spite of who we are and what we have done. And that's a blessing because we get to participate and work in this kingdom in spite of where we came from, how we got here, and who we are. This is why I, uh, I've, I've spent years getting over my fear of talking about the bustedness of my childhood and, and growing up and even the bustedness of my adultness because I have to realize that, you know, at some point I've got to take my own advice and not be afraid of the person that God actually redeemed and put to work. So that's why I can laugh about it and joke. I, I, I joked this morning in Sunday school that my mother and my aunt, the, the lovely pagan women that they are, <laughs> well, were, um, their, their nickname for me when I first went into ministry was Reverend Potty Mouth. Because as I told you guys before, I was raised by an alcoholic naval veteran, a drunken sailor. Cursing was language. It's what you did. And I have worked on that and worked on that, and there are still days that I work on that doesn't make me good. It's not something to brag about, but it is something to point out that God saved me. And believe me, I have that conversation more than you will ever realize. He saved me. And that's why I can persevere in the work that I do, because if he can save me, there's hope for the rest of you. No. <laughs> there we go. Got to make sure I get that little dig in there every chance I get. But who am I to look at the rest of the world and be like, I cannot believe you people. The pagans, wait for it, act like what? Pagans! And we have the audacity to stand over here and be like, oh, can you believe those people that they act like that? If we're, if we're honest, we'd be like, well, yeah, you should have seen me 30 years ago. Ooh, that would have been ugly. He can bring me through. He can redeem me. He can sanctify me. He can cleanse me. Some things quickly, some things over the years. If he can do that for me, he can do it for them too. So what do they need? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They need my mercy and my proclamation and my pointing to Christ. They need all of that because without it, they got enough condemnation. You know who knows they're sinning? Everybody. They do. They know. I just have to walk and be like, hey, you, you, you are aware, right? Okay, good. Now you do know there's a, there's a Christ for that, right? See, simple. We get to the point and we proclaim his goodness because, again, my life isn't about their condemnation. It's about my worship. And I worship by doing what? Proclaiming the goodness of the king, celebrating his great and majestic work, and pointing out that, hey, if he can bring me into this kingdom, he can bring whoever into this kingdom. So, we'll continue. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide, about four by two, so covers the top. 
You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the one end and one cherub at the other end. I love the specificity of God here. Because if, if you were given the box and told to make two cherubs, you'd have thought to put them where? One on each end. But God goes, I don't trust these people for anything. So make two cherubs, put one on one end and put the other on the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned towards the mercy seat. Now, that's a lot of detail for some angels that I have no idea what they look like. Because <laughs> I have never seen cherubim short of like Hallmark greeting cards and then they look like, you know, bizarre naked babies with arrows. And I don't think that's it. I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm just going to go on a limb and say I don't think that's it. Why does this matter so much and why are they there? This is where your Bible gets to connect some things for you. So you've got to fast forward to, again, you want to understand the prophets, understand the work of God in the Exodus. Ezekiel chapter 10. You know, it's a good day when we go to Ezekiel and all the weird stuff there, right? Then I looked and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne above them. And the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered. And the cloud filled the inner court. The, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub into the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord entering into the temple, what precedes it? The cherubim. If you're going to go stand before the glory of the Lord at the ark, what should precede it? Because there's a pattern here. The glory of the Lord is preceded by the cherubim when Ezekiel sees it because Ezekiel sees the glory and honor of God. Therefore, when Moses and the people are supposed to build it, they're supposed to build it rightly. They're supposed to build it accurately. They don't build it with just God sitting there. They build it with his heralds, his forerunners, to proclaim his name, to proclaim who he is. Did you notice anything else in that what I read? Let me read this again and see who gets the brownie point today. You ready? Here you go. I looked and behold in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. Where have we seen something like sapphire before? Exodus 24, one chapter ago. Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the, they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. In other words, when these descriptions are given, this is not Moses going, all right, how should we describe it? Well, maybe, maybe sapphire would look pretty. What do you think? You want to make it sapphire? No, he describes it as sapphire because what did he see? He saw something that looked like sapphire. And we can see that because when Ezekiel describes it, what does he describe? What he sees. There's a consistency here. These things matter because, again, if you were going to make up something, you'd get something wrong after a while. You'd mess up the details, or you'd make it make sense. I can't make the cherubim make sense. I just know that they're there, because every time the glory of the Lord shows up, you know what happens to be there? Some cherubim. So guess what's going on in the ark? Cherubim. 
You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. This is where it gets good. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony which I will give you. We covered that. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. In other words, when this is done, the king will be there. Now, fast forward in your Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Now, this is a good day. Come on, you've gotten a minor prophet, an Ezekiel, and a Revelation. If only I had hunted down like, you know, Habakkuk or something, it'd be a win. But I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God is among men. He will live among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Notice the connections. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, I have gone out of my way, not as much this morning as I have in past times. God, the presence of God is going to be amongst the people in their camp. What was lost in the garden is being restored. They are dwelling in the midst of Yahweh, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Did this go well? Because when we bring the ark into the temple, we've lost some stuff. When the Babylonians burn the place to the ground, we lose some stuff. We lose the ark. We don't have any of it. Why did the Babylonians burn the place to the ground again? Oh yeah, because of the amazing, massive sin of Israel. How did we even get kings to build a temple? Oh yeah, the people sinned and rejected God as ruling over them and turned aside to be like the world. And then when they got kings, they didn't honor their kings and the kings didn't honor God and some of them were good and some of them were, some of them were miserable and some of them served idols and some of them cleaned the temple and then none of them seemed to get this all right. In other words, God dwells in the midst of the people and it's a train wreck. This is why Hebrews talks about the better covenant being the covenant that Christ has inaugurated. This is the difference because what comfort and hope do we have that us dwelling in the presence of God, like Revelation 21 describes, is going to be better than how they did it? And the answer is, keep reading Revelation 21. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In other words, you will persevere because Christ has persevered. Our end will be better than this nation's end because of the work that Christ has accomplished. It is not our righteousness which we bring before God. It is Christ's righteousness. It is his sacrifice, his goodness, his offering. We don't come and be like, I got dibs. Oh yeah, you got dibs. Why do you got dibs? Well, because I'm good. Look, look at, look at everything in my life. No, no, wrong answer. I got dibs because Christ has dibs and I belong to him. Well, how do you know you belong to him? Well, you see, go look at my life. Everything in my life was about him. And when I found out there was something in my life that wasn't about him, I went after it 
tooth and nail, kicking and screaming, clawing and scratching until it was dead, and that too was about him. That's why it talks about he who perseveres to the end. It's not because, well, you got to make it to the end. Well, you do. Why? Because by making it to the end, it shows that Christ drug you kicking and screaming where? To the end. That all of your sin, all of your foibles, all of your iniquity, he has overcome. He conquered because he is good and he is the Savior. That's what's being demonstrated. That's what's being shown. Our end is better than what happens to this nation because Christ is better. Here's the dumbest thing I'll say all morning. Christ is better than Moses. He's a better deliverer than Moses. He's a better priest than Aaron. He's a better king than David. He's a better warrior than David. He's smarter than Solomon. He's more holy than Hezekiah and Josiah. He is better than all of them. They serve a purpose. They paint part of the picture, but the picture is meant to point us to Christ because Moses can't get us there. Moses can't get himself there, but Jesus can. Aaron can't get us there. Jesus can. David can't secure the nation. Jesus can. Solomon can't be smart enough to overcome his sin. Jesus can. That's why we lean into him and forsake the wisdom the trappings, the blessings of this world, and long for the wisdom, the blessings, and the gifts of the world that is to come. This is, again, why we started out when we, when we talk about we're taking up an offering. What's your heart want to give? Because it's a litmus test. What do you care about? Well, God gave me all this cool stuff when we left Egypt. Yeah, and now he needs it for the work of his people. But, but what am I revealing? What's in my heart, which guides my mind, which then steers my actions. I'm supposed to be Job. What was Job's answer? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We wrote a song about it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because what's more important? My stuff? No. My family? No. My life? No. God is more important. I live in every avenue to serve him and him alone. All right. I promise we're going to get there. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a a gold border around it. You shall make for it a rim and a handbreadth around it, and you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. You shall make four gold rings for it. Put rings on the four corners, which are on its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that... So that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. (sighs) A lot of detail here, right? We're getting to why. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. That's the why right there. That's why all of that detail matters. Leviticus 24 expands on this. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offering by fire, his portion forever. Choke myself. All of that table work for some bread. Well, that bread matters. It's a provision for the priest of God, something that they are to eat, teaching them what? What is the good lesson for the priest? Like, do you pack lunch when you go to the temple or when you go to the tabernacle? Like, does the, does the priest get to walk in and be like, all right, what'd your wife pack you today in your bag? <laughs> this is their provision. This is their gifting from God, teaching them what again? Let's see what the, uh, 
the true high priest got from this lesson. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, I know you'll know this one, to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry, you think? And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, this is part of the lesson here, is the priest goes in, and let's be honest, I got work to do. Look, if you're, if you're wired like me, and you walk in, and there's just bread sitting on the table, you know what you're going to do? <laughs> I'm going to eat it. Look, Cameron's grandmother figured this out about me real quick when she and I were first dating. She would make this big holiday spread for food, and then she'd be annoyed because it would just be two of them in the house, and she'd put all this food in the fridge, and half of it would go bad before she'd eat it. And then she discovered that I'm a grazer. So she would just leave it on the counter and organize it. And, you know, we'd all be talking and hanging out, and I'd walk through and grab a bite to eat and eat, and, you know, talk and hang out and walk back through. And it never dawned on me for a while, anyway, that as I was eating, she would just keep consolidating it into, like, I am not the garbage disposal. Put the food away, because if you just leave it there, I'm going to keep eating it. And she's like, oh, I know. That's why I do it. <laughs> See, and I'm not the only person who's wired like this. You have someone like this in your family. Every time they gather, you just hover around the food table. If you're the priest, that's not there. It's for you, but it's for you at the appropriate time, meaning you are provided for. You will eat when you're supposed to, in the way you're supposed to, because your work there is not about your hunger. It's about what? Your worship. Deuteronomy 8, this is where Jesus is quoting from. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. In other words, it's not about your stomach. It's not about your crops. It's not about your weather. It's not about your family. It's not about your army. Israel, it's not about you. It's about God and his provision. That's why the detail. Then you shall make, here's where it gets real good. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from its one side, and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms. In the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it. And a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of gold. Almond trees. How many of you were like, we need lamps in the shape of almond trees? Why an almond tree? Like, how many of you can even picture what an almond tree looks like right now in your mind? You got nothing, right? You have to go Google it. Well, if you were an Israelite, this would mean something to you. Jeremiah chapter 1, because Jeremiah uses it as an object lesson, proving that it means something. The word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? 
And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness whereby they have forsaken me and, I have, and, have, and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the work of their own hands." Jeremiah uses it, uses it as an object lesson because the almond tree, due to when it blooms and how quickly and how obviously it blooms, was a warning. It was a marker of things that are to come. So God can show Jeremiah, hey, that warning, that marker that you guys use, that's a marker for me too. That's why it's put here for the priest. This is a symbol that something is coming. Now, priest, you are standing here to offer sacrifice and atonement for the people. If you fail to take your job seriously, if you do not do this well, what's coming? Judgment is coming. Your lamp is a reminder that something is coming. And based on your work before God, it's either going to be what? Judgment or mercy. You think that would change how you viewed your work in that space? Do you think you would see it differently? That literally the lamp that I'm using to see what's going on is a reminder that things are coming beyond me. Things that are important. You shall make its lamps seven in number and they shall mount its lamps as to, so as to shed light on the space in front of it. You get one lamp. Do you think you know what it looks like? Do you think you know where it is? Do you think it's in the corner of your vision a lot? Keep in mind what a lamp is. They didn't plug it in and turn it on. It's what? It's fire. <laughs> you think you're careful around it? Think after a week, a month, a year, a lifetime of service as the priest. If you went home, your wife said, hey, what's that lamp look like? After going in there for years and years and years, what would you be able to do? Yeah, with great detail, because it's a warning that, again, your work matters. Your work is important to the people because something is coming, and based on the work of God will determine the redemption or the judgment. Based on the atonement offered by the priest is either blessing or curse. Its snuffers in their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown you on the mountain. Why is that such a big deal again that we repeated it? Because the pattern is showing you the work of God. It is testifying to his greatness and his mercy. Psalm 121. I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. How you live, what you do with your money, how you travel for worship, the way that you build the table, the food that you eat, the sacrifice that you offer, all of it meant to point to who? God. Because where's our provisions come from? It comes from God. Where does the mercy in our world come from? It comes from God. Where does our redemption come from? It comes from God. Where does our strength to persevere come from? It comes from God. All of these aspects of life are pointing us to 
who he is. Our worship should do the same. And here's where it gets good, because Christian, guess when your worship doesn't stop? It doesn't stop in the next few minutes. It stops when you stop breathing. And then you know what it does? It starts right back up again, because then you stand blameless before him in great joy. This is who we are, and it matters because it demonstrates who he is. Not because he's forgotten, but because we forget on a regular basis. So we get the reminders and an opportunity to reorient our lives on who God is, what he has done, and why that matters in our world. Let's pray.